Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. A few years ago, I was on uh, Bill Maher, and I was just doing my thing, talking about stuff, and Kurt Schilling decided he didn't like what I was saying, and he just started tweeting all this crazy Kurt Schilling-type stuff at me. And I, you know, responded to him and kind of put him in his place. And I think there were a lot of baseball writers who had been wanting to do that. And then the ones who weren't already my friends immediately became my friends. Uh, and so then, you know, when I have this book uh, that I want people to buy because it, you know, it's my story and it benefits a good cause. I reached out to a bunch of my friends and that included a bunch of baseball writers. We will talk about the story and that cause in a second. And you you served our country and thank you for your service and we will get to the ptsd and the horrors of that in a second but i'm just curious as a politician and someone who was armed and willing to fight for a cause on behalf of what he thought this country was your thoughts as a soldier of everything that america everything you've seen from america since you said whatever it is that you had to say on bill maher about kurt Schilling. you know it's a pretty scary time in america right now right i mean it's like that is the understatement of the century. Um, we're going through a bit of a national trauma. Um, and I think as a soldier, I guess the thing that I think about the most in this period is that we are in the longest period uh, in our history, the longest consecutive period without some form of mandatory service. And I think that we forget that that's probably a big part of why it's so easy for folks to dehumanize the other side, like whatever it is you believe in to say like, oh, well, you know, the people who don't believe the way I believe, they're just not like me and I just don't relate to them. And it, it causes a lot less of a motivation for us to actually care or see any humanity in one another. You can even see it like invading sports, you know, like the way, um, you know, and, and I know that you all aren't this way, which I appreciate, but like there's a lot of sports, you know, stuff now that's just like CNN. I mean, it's just like, let's just have a hot take and get angry about something that we shouldn't be angry about, but it's because we're not seeing the humanity of other people. And I think there's something to be said for the idea that if we can get back to a place where Americans have some shared experience, instead of it just being like, what does it mean to be American right now? It's like one in three people watch the Super Bowl. Uh, everybody has a, a, a view one way or the other on Taylor Swift, but there's not a lot else that, that, links us together right now. And that worries me a lot. Is this the country you thought you were fighting for? Um, that's a really hard question. No, but that part of that is um, I was 25 years old and I thought I was bulletproof and I had a pretty idealized idea of what America was, right? And, you know, I had what I'd learned in school and then I, like any 25 year old, and then I came home and I was in the state legislature and I found that there was a lot of corruption and there was, you know, a lot of stuff that would make you feel cynical. And I've had to fight pretty hard to not feel cynical. I choose not to be cynical, but I understand how people become cynical too. What was the most dispiriting part of politics for you? 
Well, I'd say the most dispiriting part of politics was it's, it's a trope to say the money, but the money. Um, you know, I had, I had done this job in Afghanistan where I, I had done anti-corruption investigations. And I remember having conversations with like Afghan uh, officials who would say things like, you know, this isn't America. It, you know, you have, if you're not rich, you can't, you can't actually get anything done here. And I remember being like, yeah, it makes sense in America, you know, anybody can. And then you get to the state legislature and it's like, I'm no longer physically scared of having my, my head cut off on YouTube because of meetings I go into. But all of a sudden, like the meetings are still about money. They're about campaign money. And you got people who you're trying to get them to do things that you think matter. But they're saying things like, well, I'm worried that the speaker of the house will take away my parking spot. And, you know, the outsized power that people with money have over our politics it's really, it can be really discouraging. I maintain that we are living in our most unsafe time as someone who knows about guns and has seen what is happening with guns in America and had political power that could have forced legislation if indeed we weren't choked at every turn by big money. You see the flippancy with which guns are used in America and think what? I think it's nuts. I mean, and, and the hard part is I want to engage in the debate in a way that is productive, right? So you can't just say like, that's nuts because then people just go to their, you know, to their corners. But look, from my perspective, uh, like I, I became famous for an ad where I put a rifle together blindfolded while I made the case for background checks. And the thing is, is the reason I was able to put that rifle together in AR-15 is because it is indistinguishable from the rifle that I was trained on and that I carried overseas. And then you've got you know, people who don't wanna see an assault weapons man who will say, no, 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 it's a different weapon. It's not a different weapon. The only difference is there's a little toggle switch that allows you to go to three round burst or fully auto on, on the military version, which is the M4 or the M16. But you're taught never to use that toggle switch because it's a waste of ammo, which means that the fact that I could, you know, I could go out right now and probably have an AR-15 in 30 minutes that's the that's the weapon I carried overseas uh, when I was trying to protect myself and the people around me from the Taliban and Al Qaeda. There's, I don't. It, what drives me nuts about it is, is like everybody wants to have not everybody the right wing wants to have this conversation that is about anything but that. They want to pretend that it's about you know mental health or some breakdown in our culture, and then we go and we say, okay, well let's put money into that. Let's address that stuff. And everyone wants to act like, well, it can't be guns. I mean, it's like, I can't even think of an analogy, you know, because of how wild it is. Um, so it can be very, very frustrating. Is there any reason for a, an American civilian to have an AR-15? No, there's, there's no reason. I mean, look, can we be real? Like, I, I'm from Kansas City. I was in the military. I grew up, my dad was a cop. Like, we had guns. Um, my, you know, there's people in my family who, I mean, the, the one I did in the ad, that belonged to my brother, right? Like, but even he is like, we shouldn't have these anymore. It's guns are fun. That's what we should be honest about. That's why a lot of people want them. It's like, they're a hobby. It's a tool. They can be, you know, I, I like to go out shooting and stuff like that. But like, no, need? No, nobody needs an AR-15 in this country. Uh, no civilian needs it. Absolutely not. Why'd you write the book? I wrote Invisible Storm because this is the book that I wish had existed 14 years ago. Um, when uh, when I came home from Afghanistan, because I think if I had had this book about 
trauma and what it feels like to have PTSD and then what it's like to go through therapy for it and to learn that actually post-traumatic growth is a real thing that's achievable, I think I would have gone after it as opposed to running away from myself by running for office for 11 years. Maybe I still would have run for office, but I think I would have done it in a way where I could be present in my life and with my family and I could have enjoyed that period a lot more. Uh, and, you know, there's as a country, we're living through all sorts of trauma right now. And there's people listening to this who are like, yeah, but I'm not a combat veteran. Like, I, but the thing that bothers me is a car accident or a divorce or losing a loved one. And the message of the book is trauma is trauma. And my brain doesn't know what your brain experienced and your brain doesn't know what my brain experienced. And if you're trying to rank your trauma out of existence, you're just wasting time when you could be feeling better. What do you mean by running away from myself? I didn't want to be in the present for all that time. You know, I was having night terrors and, uh, paranoia. You know, I felt like I was in danger. My family was in danger. Um, I didn't like myself. I became depressed. I had a lot of anger and guilt and shame. And, uh, and when you feel like that, you feel like, well, I got to keep moving. I got to, you know, some people turn to other things and I don't judge anybody for choosing something different. You know, some people turn to drugs or alcohol. What was right in front of me was a career and, and was politics. And I could grab onto that. And that's what I did. And, um, and so that was me running away from, being alone with myself. And uh, now, in a phase of post-traumatic growth in my life, like I like myself. I think I'm a pretty all right guy. And uh, that makes me a, a really good father and husband and even a pretty decent Little League coach. And, uh, and so I'm enjoying that a lot. What are night terrors like? Uh, night terrors uh, suck. So um, for me, it, it's, here's, here's what it was like for me. When I first came home, um, well, I should give some context to what I did in Afghanistan first, because that was the source of my nightmares. Um, so I was an intelligence officer, and my job was to, uh, my, my boss over there, uh, my colonel, he referred to it as thugint, which was short for thug intelligence, which is a term he made up. And he defined it as you develop relationships with thugs in order to uh, get information on other thugs. So I went out and I met with people of questionable allegiances, myself and my translator, and I brought back information about people who were in the Afghan government or military who we were working with, but who might also be working with the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or narco-trafficking. And in order to do that, I had to go meet with people who I couldn't know whether or not it was a trap, whether or not they were going to kidnap me and kill me. And, uh, and so what I told myself was, well, I didn't have a bullet whiz by my ear and I didn't have to fire my weapon. I didn't get blown up. So it wasn't combat. Um, you know, and so I came home and I had these nightmares that were mostly about getting kidnapped um, or somebody coming into the room who wasn't supposed to be there and then knowing uh, things have gone bad. That, you know, I'm going to have to start shooting. And, uh, and it, that was what they were at first. And then after a while, what they, they evolved and they became sort of this thing uh, where I was having the same dreams, but they weren't in a military context and they weren't in Afghanistan. So the story I could tell myself was, oh, I'm getting better. Uh, and the truth was, is that I found out later in therapy at the VA, that that's actually like really bad because now my subconscious is giving me these messages that I'm in a lot of danger in my modern environs because now they're happening in my house and to my family. And when you combine that with the symptoms I was already having, thinking I was in danger all the time, it was reinforcing it. Uh, and then the last part of night terrors that for me sucked the most was a thing called sleep paralysis, which is where um, you, your body, like your brain wakes up, but you're hallucinating and you feel like you're still in the dream, but you're aware that you're awake now, but your body is still asleep. So you can't move and you can't breathe. And so my wife had to, had, she became a really light sleeper so that she could rock my body asleep when I would have the, when I would breathe, like I was having a night terror, she joked that, um, and the book, by the way, has 
a lot of levity and a lot of jokes because otherwise who would, the hell would read this story? Um, and, you know, my wife joked that she was my service animal because that was her role was to, was to roll me back and forth in the middle of the night. So that's what night terrors are like. And it's really nice to not have them anymore by dealing with the underlying trauma or for the most part, not have them. What are the specifics you could give us about the worst of the recurring dreams? Yeah, sure. It's, you know, a little bit of it I've described already, right? Like that it, what would happen is, is that it was very rare that the dream would go all the way through to me being um, to the end, right? Like it would get to a point where I was about to be killed or, or I was being killed or whatever, but usually where the dream ended, because I got to the point where subconsciously I understood, oh, this is a night terror, right? And so where the dream would usually end was something was out of place, right? So it would be like, because that was what I sought to control all the time. Like when you're going into a meeting with a guy who also has an allegiance to the Taliban, you know what you expect in the meeting. And if anything is out of place, if anything is unexpected that you can't control, you're like, I got to, I got to get the F out of here. You know it right away. So in my dreams, it could be something eventually the way it evolved was, well, it started with, oh, that guy's not supposed to be here. I'm in Afghanistan. That guy's not supposed to be here. I got to get out of here or I got to start shooting or whatever. And then I would go, oh, I got to wake myself up. But eventually when it evolved to taking place in my modern environs, it could be as extreme as a really common one was I went to open the door in the middle of the night uh, and I wanted, you know, in my house. And then somebody who I couldn't see would bowl over me. And I knew that they were going toward my family, toward my son's room or my wife. And I couldn't stop them. You know, that thing you have in your dreams where like you, you want to fight, but you can't. I would have that. But then sometimes it was so minimal as like, I'd be in my kitchen and the toaster would be in a different place. And that would set off an alarm within me um, that would cause my heart to race. Because again, it was just anything not where it was expected to be. You mentioned night terrors and paranoia. What was the paranoia like and where was it different? So the paranoia, I just use the term paranoia because it's easy for everybody to understand. The, I learned in therapy that the actual term for it is hypervigilance. And what my hypervigilance presented like was I would, if I was in a crowd, I, had, I felt like I had to size up everybody. You know, and if anybody was acting even remotely weird, like I would fixate on them. Or if it was a warm day, but somebody was wearing a coat, the stuff that I learned over there, because over there it was like, I went into a meeting, I knew where all the exits were, I would face them as best I could. I knew who was in the room, how armed were they? I knew how many armed people were there uh, you know, potential bad guys between me and my vehicle. So then when I got home, my brain didn't really, as much as I tried, move out of, you know, the place where it said we're in danger all the time. And so like as a politician, I got pretty good at crowds, obviously that was a necessity. But when I was going to get up and give a speech, you know, half of, you know, I was like known as like the hardest working man in politics because I would shake every room, every hand in a room of a thousand people before I got up to speak. Well, 50% of that was, I'm an extroverted guy who likes people and, and that's, that comes naturally to me. But the other 50% of that was, I really felt like I needed to look everybody in the eye and assess that threat or I wasn't comfortable getting up on, on the dais in front of everybody. Um, and so obviously that can be kind of exhausting. Did you ever not get up there? Did, did somebody trigger something where you're like, okay, this is the time I need to actually listen to this. It's not just paranoia or hypervigilance. It's a great question. I don't remember ever not getting up there, but I do remember doing things like finding people who, you know, they kind of set off an alarm in me and then walking up to them and having a longer conversation or 
going up to a host and just being like, who is that person? You know, or, or saying to somebody on my staff, like, can you keep an eye on that person? Eventually, uh, I ended up as Secretary of State getting uh, a bodyguard um, as part of that. And then that person also went with me to the Senate campaign. And that really helped me a lot. You know, it, it allowed me to not completely, but at least partially take that responsibility off myself. Um, but then it made it, it made it really hard when then I was out on the, basically what was pretty much the presidential campaign trail a couple years later. And I, you know, I didn't have security like that. And, uh, and then it put me back on where I was trying to do that duty for myself. And that was, that was pretty tough. What's been hardest to heal? Um, man, these are great questions. Um, because they're, they're, I've done a lot of interviews in the last couple of days, and these are different questions. The hardest thing to heal for me, I think, has been something I haven't talked about yet, which is there's a thing about trauma or, or about PTSD where I don't want to say it's like a voice because sometimes people take me literally, like there's literally a voice in my head, but it, I'll say, you know, in the uh, metaphorical sense, there's, there's a voice, it, you know, it's your own voice. So talking to you and saying, you know, it's not the trauma, it's not the war, it's just you. You're just an a-hole, right? And and then part of that for me has always been me saying to myself that I didn't do enough, that I, that my service was inadequate, and that I have no right to these feelings. And so I guess the thing that I I wouldn't say grapple with, but the thing that I know what it is and that I I think about the most, and then I I'm able to bat it away because I know the truth, is that I have to remind myself pretty frequently that PTSD is real, and that I really did experience that. And that it's not just me. It's not just like weakness. It's not just, you know, some made up thing. And the way that I generally, what I remind myself of, that's the clearest indication for me that it was real and that, that it's still there, but I now manage it, is I just think about the nightmares. Because you know, I get nightmares every once in a while now. Like every few weeks I get them, but they're nowhere near as bad. And, and I, know little, I know things now like, like when I'm getting them, it's because I'm not dealing with the, the intrusive memories and the intrusive thoughts. So I do what's counterintuitive, which is I'll go watch Band of Brothers or I'll go read about combat or about war because then my brain processes it and doesn't feel it has to process it in its subconscious when my guard is down. But the fact that I don't get those anywhere near as much now, that's what I use to remind myself of like, hey man, that was real because that used to happen every night and then you went to therapy and now it doesn't. And that's the most objective thing I can give myself to give myself that self-compassion of saying, no, that was a real thing. And you, you fought it. As a man, as a soldier, as somebody who was grappling with self-love as well, did you have any hesitancy in trying therapy or were you so desperate that you needed help? I had hesitancy for 11 years <laughs> about it, right? Like, and it was twofold. It was one that was, part of it was, I didn't think I'd earned PTSD. Um, and so I was like, well, that's not for me. I just must be messed up. I'm just not a person who sleeps or whatever I would tell myself. And then the other part, um, was the stigma. You know, look, I, I was like pursuing the presidency. So the idea of just accepting a diagnosis of PTSD and going to therapy for a long time, it felt like untenable, but you nailed it. I just got to a point where I was like, I just, you know, I got to the international capital of zero F's left to give rock bottom where it was like, I felt like I wanted to kill myself and I didn't want to want to kill myself. And I didn't know if therapy would work. And I was scared about like hitting the self-destruct button on the only thing going really well for me, which was my political career. But I didn't feel I had a choice. So I was like, man, I got to go try this because I would run out of ideas. For those who don't know, PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. What is earning 
post-traumatic stress disorder? You know, um, when you go into the Army, um, from the moment you get off the bus at basic, they get a really simple message across to you, which is what you're doing is no big deal. And it sounds like I'm being critical of the Army, but I'm not because it's a super necessary form of brainwashing. If you don't convince me that what I'm doing at every moment of my service is no big deal, then I ain't walking back into a room with a guy who may want to cut my head off after having done it a bunch of times. And if you don't convince somebody else that what they're doing is no big deal, they're not going back out on patrol after they were shot at the day before. Like, uh, uh, you know, the human brain, like, understand, it's why you don't touch a hot stove, right? But if you genuinely believe that what you're doing is no big deal, you'll go do that. And I don't fault the army because, you know, they need people to do that work. And they needed me to go out and get the information that I got. And, and I couldn't have done it without that. Here's the problem. When you leave the army, nobody sits you down and says, okay, actually that was some crazy stuff. And like, it was actually quite a big deal. And you're probably gonna have some issues and that's totally normal. And so as a result, when I'm like getting worse and worse and worse, I always have somebody I can point to who, you know, went through something worse, right? Like I have, I have a buddy I, I went through training with who was shot by a sniper. I have, you know, friends who were in firefights every day of their tour who they had PTSD and they had to go to the VA. But I'm like telling myself, like, I didn't earn this. Like, I have it on good authority from the United States Army that what I did was no big deal. And so then saying even to yourself that you have PTSD can feel like something that is like the cardinal sin of the military. It can feel like stolen valor. And that's one thing that I thought, I'm never going to do that. I'm not going to steal somebody else's valor. And it wasn't until, you know, I, I didn't really start to accept it until I was sitting with a clinical social worker at the VA in one of my first appointments who said to me, hey, look, so you were in the most dangerous place on the planet uh, and you went out outside the wire for hours at a time, basically by yourself, just you and a translator. Nobody knew where you were. Nobody was coming to back you up. You're meeting with super dangerous people who may want to kill you. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, does that not sound kind of traumatic to you? And I was like, well, when you describe like somebody else doing it, yeah, it does. And so that's what I mean. And the thing is like, you don't have to be somebody who served in Afghanistan to feel that way. We are all constantly trying to, we think we're trying to gain perspective by thinking about people who have it worse. But the truth is all we're doing is delaying our, our power to heal, whatever it is that we've been through. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. You are forgiving the military for what is a necessary brainwashing. Yeah, I still have, I, I, maybe it's strange, I, I miss the Army in a lot of ways, and I, I have a lot of affection for it. And, uh, you know, and I, in my day job now, I work with veterans, like, which allows me to feel like I'm kind of part of that culture still. So, What do you miss? Uh, I miss the ever-present feeling of you're doing something greater than yourself. But I also miss like simple stuff, man. Like, you know, when you're when you're in the army, like you get up every day, you know what your mission is, you know who your boss is, like you know what clothes you're gonna wear that day. It's simple, and and uh, I think there's also a part of PTSD where you can get stuck in the simple. Like, it's kind of like, you know, as a golfer, you need a bunch of different clubs. If I'm not a very good golfer, but I'm just good enough to like, I can use a few different clubs in my bag. Right. And that's like the emotions we use every day in everyday life. Right. Right. We have things like embarrassment and, you know, nuanced stuff, empathy. But when you go into a combat zone, your bag, it's like three clubs, man. It's like, it's a putter, you know, a wedge and a seven. And it, and those it's like anger, boredom and fear. You don't really need anything else. And if you use the other clubs, you know, they're so nuanced, you might get killed. Right. And so then you come home and it's like half of it is your brain doesn't believe that you're now on you're not on the par three course anymore, that you're now on a course where you might need the other clubs. But the other half is like, you know, you're afraid that if you use the other clubs, you'll die because that's what your brain learned. And it's just simpler. It's just simpler to be in the other world. And so you have to train your brain not to be in that very simple world and to re relearn the other clubs. You say ever-present feeling of greater than self is what you miss. As you look at America after a pandemic and just what has been to me an appalling selfishness that I did not know existed before having it unspool over the last few years, I can't imagine how dismayed you are as someone who misses ever-present feeling of something yeah. greater than yourself watching specifically selfishness. Yeah. Look, man, it's... It can make you pretty cynical. Um, I mean, I'll take one example, which is I've been really involved uh, over the last 10 months in the effort to evacuate uh, folks for, from Afghanistan, including some people who I'm close to over there. And we've gotten a lot of them out, but it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to get people to continue to care about it, to get people to continue to fund it. It's a struggle sometimes to get some people in the government to feel like it's a debt that we owe to these people. And, you know, and then there's the obvious stuff, right? Like people refusing to care about other people's kids and schools, you know, in a shooting or, 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 you know, just wear a mask and all that stuff. But the thing about the military, that's the ever present sense of you doing something greater than yourself is like, I, I'm, I went in as like a young patriotic guy and all that, but really once you're there, the feeling that's greater than yourself is, and it's a trope, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's just that it's the guys and gals around you. 
I mean, that's the thing, like, is that you, it's always funny to me, like when I hear politicians like rhapsodizing or, or like uh, glamorizing some battle of the past, like particularly politicians who didn't serve in there, you always see this, like you go to a Memorial Day thing uh, where they show up and they got to give a speech and they give a speech and it ends up being about, they, you know, they, their staff will take some, you know, posthumous Medal of Honor citation and turn it into a speech and they'll tell that story and they'll litter into it references to and then you know as as he was no doubt thinking about you know the the greatness of america he did it's like no 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 they were thinking my buddies are behind me and that's all they were thinking um and and so that's that's the sense of something greater than yourself i think it's very it's more pedestrian like that in retrospect what's most wrong about what you thought you were fighting for in your early 20s what did you get most wrong you know and I want to be clear, like I'm not, I still, you know, I still have uh, some optimism and I still believe there's a lot of potential um, for the country. But I think what I got most wrong, and this is not just as a young soldier, um, but as a political science nerd, right, in college, is that I think I had this perception, and I think a lot of us are still walking around with this, that America's institutions will keep us from going the wrong direction. That we somehow had, in some sort of genius, set up a system that would keep the really bad things from happening. And what, what I missed about that, and what I think a lot of people still miss and take for granted, is that every time that's happened in our history, where we were on the brink of something really bad, you know, Watergate or whatever, there was a person in charge of at least one of those institutions who believed in that institution's role. And so when you have somebody in charge, when you have Trump, you know, for four years in charge of the executive, and then you've got McConnell for, you know, for most of that time in charge of, of the legislative, and then you've, you've got conservatives in charge of the court, like, and I think, you know, John Roberts at least did believe to some extent in preserving what the institutional role was, not entirely, but to some extent, that's like the saving grace. When, the, when you got McConnell and Trump, who could care less about those norms, who do not believe at all in caring about what happens after them, that's a huge breakdown in the system. And our, our system of government was not built to sustain that. And that was maybe a naivete that I went into it with, that you know, our system would sustain something like that. No, like it, it won't. And that's why we gotta be so careful about who we put in charge. I don't know if this is the same question, so I will ask it and hope it's not. What gives you hope when you say you're optimistic or what keeps you from hopeless? No, it's an important question. What gives me hope is, is, is more than anything. It is the sense, and this is going to sound, I'm 41, but this is going to sound like an answer of an old political guy who's trying to dodge the question, but let me get to the end of it. What gives me hope is like when I look at rising generations and they're not just like the fact that I think that they get it in terms of what America needs to do and they're aghast at what they inherited. But I think the way that while our generations are using technology to drive us apart, that they seem more interested in using technology to create a, a sense of unity and to, to get to know people who are not like them. And, you know, and this gets derided as quote unquote wokeness, but I see it as like, you know, 18, 19, 20, 22 year old kids who are like, hey, yeah, I'm a white dude or a white girl who grew up in the suburbs, but I'm like interested in what it's like to not have my experience. And I would actually like to feel like I know some people who haven't. That makes me feel optimistic because I think one of the greatest and most unspoken problems we have as a country 
is that we don't know each other. We don't know what the heck it means to be American right now, right? And I talked about this a minute ago. And we've gone a really long time without some form of mandatory, mandatory service, so we don't have any shared experience. And therefore, we, we, have, we struggle to have empathy. You know, like, I live in Kansas City. I'm a liberal guy who lives in Kansas City. My neighbor has a Let's Go Brandon t-shirt, and our kids play together, and we watch Chiefs games together sometimes. But I got friends, liberal friends in the coast who are like, how can you, like, how can you compromise yourself to spend time? And it's like, no, 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 no. You know, but then, but then I see, I got conservatives who I used to be friends with who are like, I can't be around any people who don't agree with me. And everybody who lives on the coast is an elitist and all that. I just think that comes from we're settling into places where we don't have to know each other. And it makes me feel optimistic that the rising generation they see that kind of grosses them out. What does it mean to be an American right now? Man, I don't know. And that's what worries me. Like, I don't have a good answer to that, right? I, sadly, I think what it means to be an American right now is to be really worried and to be really concerned and to be scared of some of your fellow Americans, not just physically, but like about what, what they want to do. I got a pretty good buddy who um, he's you know, watches Fox News, and he's he's gone pretty far right in the last few years. Now, I've gone farther left. That's a big part of what's happened in the country. And I don't know that I've gone farther left. I, I feel like I've reacted to what's going on in the country. He feels like he's reacted to what's going on in the country. And what's interesting is we have these arguments, conversations that become arguments where we are both kind of expressing this similar thing, which is I'm worried about what this country is going to be like for my kids. But we have two completely different ideas of what that is. And I just, I, that worries me is that if what unites us is this fear, and that's why, not to like be pivoting back to my book, but I'll pivot back to it because all the proceeds go to a good cause. I'll pivot back to it either way. It's my book. I mean, come on. It's, but, it's um, why you're here. You're selling the book I'm, and I'm, we will, we will get to the cause in a moment because I haven't talked to you a lot about the book. Yeah. But, but I'll say like, it's why I feel like my experience, my singular, my individual experience of going through trauma and then going through healing from that trauma and going through therapy, it's why I do feel like it's relevant to anybody regardless because let's be real, like, you know, I am less likely to, to take my kids to a parade this week than I was last week. And, you know, Americans are like, I came out of my combat experience going into restaurants and wanting never to put my back to the door. But at this point, how many people are listening to this who never went to combat, who are like, I kind of prefer to have the seat facing the door. And I, I, really, I really don't like that that's what kind of is uniting us as Americans right now. You mentioned Kansas City. Put us next to you when Kansas City's fans are booing unity at the start of an NFL season. Yeah, that sucked for us, right? Because from what I, I wasn't at that game, but I talked to a lot of friends who were at that game who said that there were a lot of people applauding and then there were some people who were yelling like, you know, F Joe Biden. And then there were some people booing that and then some people booing the demonstration and it was not a good look for us. And, um, that was too bad because, you know, I really don't feel like that's what my town is about. I mean, my town is, is pretty progressive. Now look, the Metro area is large and Missouri is a place where, uh, you know, Trump won Missouri by the same amount that he won Mississippi. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you, like, that's not what happened. That's what happened, and it was embarrassing. But it at least was not as pronounced as it, I think it sounded on TV. 
You mentioned the grouping of anger, guilt, shame. Which is the worst of these? There's sort of a triumvirate, but I think the one that was the hardest on me was shame. And that is because that's the one that caused me to extend the least amount of self-compassion to myself, you know, and um, because I felt like I was an irredeemable piece of crap, right? And and it caused me to really seek a lot of external validation to want to sit at the cool kids table and get to know, you know, Hollywood celebrities and stuff to try and convince myself that I wasn't irredeemable. But the others, um, guilt, pretty bad, you know, when you feel like you didn't do enough for the country, uh, is, which is how I used to feel. But the interesting one, anger, I think was more of a coping mechanism. Like it was pretty bad for people around me. Like I was never violent or anything like that, but, but I would shut down. And, and, and what I learned in therapy was that all of them, especially anger, were coping mechanisms because, again, what I was seeking was control. My brain had learned you control the situation or you die. And when I was angry about something, or which for me translated to a, like a self-righteousness as a politician, I felt like I was in control. It gave me the illusion of control. And even shame gave me the illusion of control because if I decided that I was just a no good piece of crap, then at least I knew something, right? And then it made me, again, feel some sense of control. And it took going to therapy to learn that that's all that was ever about, was trying to control uncontrollable situations. Was self-love a problem for you before the military or uh, was it buried and you weren't aware of the problem? It was really not a problem for me before the military. In fact, uh, you know, um, Dan, I, I, ego has never, interestingly, ego has never been a problem for me, right? Self-confidence has never, like, even when I was so sure that I as a human was just worthless, I was also completely sure that I was the best damn politician in America and that I should be president. You know, like, it's, cra it, 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 I shouldn't use the term crazy maybe, but it's, it's crazy how those two things could coexist. And my parents did a great job. I was, you know, I was very confident and I believed that I was a good person. Um, and it really was PTSD that, and, and trauma that, that derailed that. Um, you know, so, so no, I don't think it was. So I had to relearn it. The military experience made you love yourself a great deal less. I, I'm, I'm having trouble putting all of this stuff together as it relates to confidence and self-love. You went into the military a bulletproof, confident soldier, and your military experience wasn't violent, graphic enough for you to have earned your PTSD. Yeah. Here's how I think it worked. Um, I still was very confident. I never lost my confidence in my abilities. I lost my esteem for myself. Right. And and actually, the military was one of the things that gave me esteem for myself. It, it I felt like for all the after after suffering trauma, I just felt like, well, well, yes, I feel all these ways about myself. I didn't do enough, but I am a soldier. And that's something that I respect and I like about myself. So so then when I left the military, that made it much harder because then I wasn't a soldier anymore. And then I was like, well, if I'm not a soldier, all I'm left with are these feelings about myself as a human being that I don't like and that, that were the result of suffering trauma. It turns out that uh, trauma survivors of, of all types are really commonly, uh, they, they end up with self-loathing, they don't like themselves, and they seek redemption. And I have my own non-clinical theory on this, which is that when you think about the American myth about trauma, and the easiest way to explain it is Top Gun. 
which is like, I love the Top Gun movies. I, I, I saw Top Gun Maverick. I'm going to go see it again. They're great. But look, when Goose dies, and the next thing that happens is Viper walks in and says, hey, Goose died. You got to get over it. And then, I mean, Maverick clearly has PTSD, right? But then what does Maverick do? Like, what's the lesson of the movie? He goes to the Mediterranean. He kills some bad guys. And then everything is great. And then he can throw Goose's dog tags off the boat into the ocean and go on with his life and get the girl and all is good. Well, that ain't how it works, but that's what we've been taught. We have been taught over and over again that the way you overcome trauma or any sort of mental health challenge is through singular acts of redemptive heroism. That's how I ended up, in my view, thinking I got to become president and save the world. And that's what will heal me. But the truth was, is I just needed to go to therapy and confront my trauma because it wouldn't have mattered what I did. I could have become, I could have been Bill Pullman and Independence Day. I could have literally saved the damn world. And I'd have still been like, you know, I just didn't do enough because the truth was I just needed to go to therapy. When you group anger, boredom, and fear together as a soldier's survival tools, which is the most useful? Mm, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a tie between anger and fear because fear is the part that keeps you alert enough to understand what's happening around you and to, to be like, it's that that's what gives you the adrenaline, which is an incredible drug. Like the feeling of being at your full utilization, which is where I was in Afghanistan. But then anger is what you do before the fear starts. Anger is, um, you know, it's a low simmering anger, right? And because it's like, okay, we're going outside the wire. I'm getting in the vehicle. We're rolling out of the gate. I'm not really afraid yet. Cause I've been doing this a bunch lately but I got to gear up, you know, it's not completely unlike, you know, heading out of the tunnel to play football, right? It's like, I got to gear up because I might have to take a life in 30 seconds. And that's where the low level of simmering anger can, can be helpful. The name of the book is Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. You mentioned the cause before it's important to you. So tell us about the cause. Thank you. It's a veterans community project. It's where I'm now the president of national expansion. Um, it's an organization that helped me get into therapy at the VA quickly. Um, and what we do is we build uh, campuses around the country that are villages of tiny houses for homeless veterans to transition them out of homelessness. We also operate walk-in centers uh, that go after the suicide epidemic. So basically, uh, all of my royalties from the book go to the fight against veteran suicide and veterans homelessness at Veterans Community Project. People can learn more about that at bcp.org. They can get the book at invisiblestormbook.com or literally wherever you get books. Are you of the belief that Americans do not appreciate or cannot appreciate freedom and protect it with the eternal vigilance it requires uh, enough because you cannot know what freedom is and not take it for granted, as you've mentioned, as well as people who have fought for it or fled to get it? Look, I think freedom is like anything else. I think that you come to appreciate the things in your life when you can envision losing them. And um, look, we're fortunate in that most people haven't experienced that, right? Um, but look, most people in Ukraine a few months ago, particularly, you know, if they're, if they're of a certain age, hadn't experienced that. So you never really know what people are capable of. And I guess if I have a frustration above all others with politicians of both parties these days, it's that we don't ask enough of Americans. And I don't mean like make them pay higher taxes, although in some cases I think that'd be right. I think it's more like we have a tendency to tell people what we're going to do for them 
instead of giving them an opportunity to be a part of something greater than themselves. After 9-11, George W. Bush told people to shop. And that really bothered me at the time. It's a big part of why I joined the military because that was an opportunity to ask people to get involved in their communities, to buy war bonds and not cash them in. I think Americans are ready and interested in being called to some sort of service. And I think that we feel rudderless because no one is doing it. One more time for the people. Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. If you want more of what you just got here, appreciate Jason the time. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Like I said, I'm a big fan of the show and uh, it was really neat to be able to do this. So thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. Thank you. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start, same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.